Welcome to the Weekend Pulpit of Everyday Truth. We are currently in a series of messages studying the life of Elijah and considering the ups and downs of serving God. Hope you enjoy. God bless. First Kings chapter 19 in your Bible. I want to dive right into it. We've got some folks getting baptized today. That's always really uh, important. And I want to make sure that we uh, get to that. So First Kings chapter n- number 19, we've been studying the book of, well, really not the book of First Kings, but the life of Elijah. And we are now in chapter number 19. Elijah is coming literally off a mountaintop experience in his life. And we've all had them. We've, we've all had mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Uh, maybe you can remember when you trusted Christ as your Savior. That was a mountaintop experience. You met the Lord. The Lord did for you what only God could do. That's what salvation is, by the way. It's only what God can do. We can't save ourselves. Uh, all we can do is admit that we need saving. And God does the rest. He did it through Jesus and that's a mountaintop experience. Maybe you've had other experiences in your life where you just met with the Lord in a very special way. God showed himself strong and you just felt the presence and power of God in your life. That was Elijah in chapter number 18. We read all about it. Mount Carmel, what a great experience that was. And then he ran from Mount Carmel to the capital city of Jezreel, one of the capital cities. And that's where Ahab and Jezebel were living at the time. Uh, Ahab actually followed uh, Elijah. Elijah was kind of his forerunner to say, hey, God did a great work. Ahab has been convinced. Ahab has claimed that God is the God. He's seen the light, if you will. And now Ahab is there to tell his wife Jezebel. And things don't go as well as we might have thought they would have gone. Look at verse number one of chapter number 19. So 1 Kings Chapter 19 and verse 1, uh, where the Bible says these words, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So there it is. There's the testimony. Uh, Ahab went through the whole thing. He talked about how Elijah called them to Mount Carmel. He talked about how the contest was set up. He talked about the parameters of the contest. He talked about the false prophets of Baal, all that they did to try to curry the favor of Baal. He talked about the altar of God. He talked about the water thereon. He talked about the fire from heaven. He talked about the slaying of the false prophets. He talked about the meal afterward. I mean, everything that happened that day, I mean, he gave a blow-by-blow account. So Ahab tells everything to Jezebel, and you would think that that would convince Jezebel. You would think that the fact that Jezebel has seen the rain come, I mean, God has answered the prayer. You would think that Jezebel, hearing the the change in her own husband's heart and life, probably even, even in his voice, the fact that Elijah is alive, the prophets of Baal are dead. I mean, these are great reasons why Jezebel ought to believe that God is the God. But that's not what happens. Look at verse number one again. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then, see that verse two? Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods, small g, the gods that she worshiped, the false gods, so let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Kind of like an old Western, right? Jezebel says, hey, Elijah, you've got 24 hours and I'm going to kill you. 
Look at what happens in verse number three. And when he saw that, so when Elijah got the message, when he saw all that was going on with uh, Jezebel and her reaction, he arose and went for his life. You could translate that, he ran for his life. He went for his life, and the Bible says, and came to Beersheba, that was really, really far away. That's the southernmost place you could go in inhabited Israel. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Lord, I pray that you bless the reading of your word and the word that we still will read uh, before the message is over. I pray that you would bless us as we seek to understand. We're here because we know that your word is true. We know that uh, you are real, and we want you to speak to us. So, Lord, collectively, right now, we're asking that you would help us to hear your voice through your word. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. In some real way, help us even to be changed today as we see the perspective that your word gives. Please bless this message, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled my message this morning, The, the Crushing Weight of a Failed Expectation. The, the Crushing Weight of a Failed Expectation. I don't know if you've ever had a, an expectation that has not come to pass. I, I suppose that all of us have. I suppose that all of us can say there have been times in our life when we were just sure that God was working in a certain way. There was times in our life where we were just sure that God was doing this. God was going to answer this prayer. God was going to bless in this way. I mean, after all, I mean, come on. I mean, I'm sure that we have all been in situations like that, and we probably have been in situations like that. We've seen God come through in a shining way. I mean, Elijah can say that, boy, he saw God come through in a big way here in 1 Kings chapter 18, Mount Carmel. Fire came down from heaven. God vindicated his relation, uh, his, uh, the reality of, of his presence to the false prophets of, uh, of Baal. I mean, what a day that was. God came through. But in chapter number 19, it appears that God's not coming through. In chapter number 19, it appears that God is, is not answering Elijah's prayer. It appears that all of what Elijah has done and all of what Elijah has been through and all of what Elijah is expecting of God, hey, listen, none of it, none of it is happening. So what happens when you have these expectations, not of people, because we know that people fail us, not of situations, because we know that situations change, but what happens when you have an expectation of God and your expectation of God does not come to pass? That's, what ha that's what's happening in 1 Kings chapter number 19. Elijah has this expectation of God, and the expectation of God does not come to pass. How does that work? What are we to learn? And is there a message in this for you and for me? I want us to look at the three characters that the Bible introduces in verse number one and see this story from all three perspectives. Can we do that? Look at 1 Kings chapter number 19 and look at all three characters that are introduced in verse number one. Look at them. First of all, the Bible says, and Ahab. That's, the, that's one character about whom we'll speak. And Ahab told Jezebel. That's another person about whom we'll speak. And so Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah. That's the third person about whom we'll speak. So in this order, we'll talk about Jezebel because she's the one that's getting, getting the message. 
We'll talk about uh, Ahab, because he's the one that's giving the message. And then we'll talk about Elijah, because he's the one who the message is about. So when we talk about Jezebel, and then Ahab, and then Elijah, really, we've got the story. And we're going to see the story from all three perspectives this morning. First of all, let's talk about Jezebel. How did Jezebel receive the information about that great day? She wasn't there. She was not on Mount Carmel. She saw no fire. She saw no prophets of Baal. She didn't see the contest. She didn't hear the prayer. She wasn't part of the celebratory meal. I mean, no part of it. And by the way, there was no real-time information. So when it's all going down, Jezebel doesn't know what's happening. Jezebel doesn't know that fire is coming from heaven. Oh, maybe she saw a flash in the distance, but she doesn't know. She doesn't know about the contest. She doesn't hear the prayer. None of it. Jezebel is receiving the information uh, for the first time in chapter number 19. She knows none of it. Sometimes we read into the Bible things that aren't there. So Jezebel does not know. Everything that Jezebel is about to learn, she learns at the voice of her husband, Ahab, everything that she's about to learn. And so Jezebel does not know. Matter of fact, as far as Jezebel's concerned, Jezebel probably thinks that Elijah has died. Why would she think that? Because the rain has come. So long before the messenger ever shows up, the rain starts to fall. Remember, the rain has not fallen in three and a half years. The rain has been shut up, the Bible says, in heaven. And God has now brought the rain because God has showed himself strong on Mount Carmel. But Jezebel doesn't know why the rain's coming. Jezebel has been worshiping Baal. Jezebel has put all her hope and trust in Baal. Jezebel understands that Baal to her is the rain god. He's the sky god. He's the god of fertility. He's the god of, uh, of produce. And so when the rain came, no doubt Jezebel was saying, finally, my god has come through for me. Finally, uh, my God has vindicated all of my faith because my God has killed uh, Elijah. That's what Jezebel thought. Jezebel thought that Elijah was the problem. Ahab had thought that Elijah was the problem. Remember when Elijah and Ahab met after three and a half years? Ahab said, oh, there you are. You're the problem. And Elijah said, no, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. Right? You're the problem. Sometimes we think that God's the problem. God's not the problem. I'm the problem. And so uh, Elijah had to show them, Ahab, no, no, it's not God that's the problem. It's not God's prophet that's the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem, Ahab. Well, Jezebel still has not learned that lesson. So the Bible says that Ahab comes back and tells Jezebel every little detail about that day, especially the detail that the prophets of Baal have all been eliminated. So what do I learn about Jezebel? Three things. First of all, I learned that Jezebel rejects Jezebel rejects the verified communication. She rejects the verified communication. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Skelly? What I mean by that is she gets this communication from, from, from Ahab, but it's verified. Uh, it's verified by the fact that rain has come. So she knows it's real. Uh, Ahab has totally changed positions. Ahab was a worshiper of Baal. Uh, Ahab was a, a, a promoter of Baal. Ahab had built a temple to Baal at Samaria. I mean, Ahab was a Baal worshiper, but now Ahab comes back, he's been changed. Now Ahab comes back, he's not following Baal anymore. Ahab, he, God, he is the God. He is the God. He's humble. He comes back, he's wide-eyed. He comes back, he gives the message. I mean, boy, this is a very verified communication. I mean, this is, the, this is a life that has been changed. And can I just say this? One of the greatest ways to verify your faith in Jesus Christ is by showing people a life that's been changed. 
Uh, that's the woman at the well, remember? She came back to Samaria and they said, something happened to her, her whole life has changed. It's like the maniac of Gadara. A people in Decapolis knew, hey, something happened, his whole life has been changed. Uh, when Peter heard from Andrew in John chapter one, hey, something happened, his whole life has been rearranged. And the greatest testimony you have is not the words you say, but the life you live. And Ahab's life now has been changed, albeit for a moment, it's been changed. And so this is a verified communication, the changing of Ahab's life, the coming of the rain, and the fact that Elijah is alive. Uh, Elijah is alive. The prophets of Baal are dead. Elijah is alive. I mean, this is all the proof that Jezebel needs. And yet Jezebel rejects it all. Such is the nature of human pride. Such is the nature of human pride that we don't want to believe what assaults us. We don't want to believe what humbles us. We don't want to believe, we don't want to say, I was wrong. We don't want to humble ourselves. So why? Why was Jezebel's pride so hard to dismantle? Why? I listed four reasons that just occurred to me. You might have some more. But here, I think, are some reasons why Jezebel's pride was so hard to dismantle. And can I just say this? This is, the, this is one of the reasons why our pride is so hard to dismantle. Well, why did Jezebel so doggedly dig in to Baal worship when all the evidence told her it's not true? Okay, you have four reasons. Number one, I think there was a life of early indoctrination. There was a life of early indoctrination. Jezebel had been taught from the time she was a little girl, Baal is God. Jezebel had been taught from the time that she was the princess of the Zidonians that Baal is God. She had faithfully worshipped Baal when she was three and four and five years of age. She had been taught that rain comes because of Baal and crops grow because of Baal and, and we've got to sacrifice to Baal and we've got to worship Baal and we've got to honor Baal and her whole life she'd been taught that. By the way, that's why it's so important that we teach children. Why? Because at that young, impressionable age, they need the truth. And they'll swallow anything. That's why Jesus said it'd be better for a millstone to be tied about the neck of a false teacher who leads a child in the wrong direction and he'd be cast into the sea than to offend one of these little ones. Why? Because children have a great capacity to believe things and a great capacity for humility. And here was Jezebel, as a young child, taught the wrong thing. Well, I've been all around the world. I've been in many different cultures. Agrees my heart when I went to India and saw these little children worshiping uh, the, the Hindu gods. It brought me, brought me great pain in my heart to go to Thailand and Myanmar and these uh, southeastern nations and see people worshiping idols. They don't, they don't know any better. They've been taught that by the time they're little. They need compassion. They need grace. They need somebody to go tell them. They need, they need somebody to give them the life-saving gospel of Jesus. And one of the reasons why people so doggedly dig into their belief system is because they've been indoctrinated from the time they were little, little children. A life of indoctrination, I think, fed her pride. I think, secondly, a pattern of huge investments. I mean, all her life, uh, Jezebel had made huge investments to Baal. She had engaged in building projects. Uh, all of her political career was staked upon. 
All of the alliance between the Zidonians and the Israelites was all based upon her commitment to Baal, her money, the people that were on her payroll, the people she fed, the people that ate at her table. Every day, all of them had one thing in common, Baal, Baal, and Baal. So now for her to admit that Baal is not really a god and Baal is dead and Baal is not strong, God is the God, is for her to say that every investment I've made in my life has been wrong. That's hard. It's hard for people to come to Christ and to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and have to admit that everything I've been believing in is wrong. All the investments I have been making are wrong. It's like the rich young ruler that said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to think that way. I don't want to think that I have to part with the other things I'm trusting in. It can't be Jesus alone. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he is the only way. And it's all to our pride to think there's nothing I can do, and my investments are worthless. Boy, pride was maintained because she had made huge investments. She had been indoctrinated as a young girl. She had a family that shared her worldview. Think about that. She had a family that shared her worldview. That's what her daddy believes. My daddy believes in Baal. That's what my mom believes. That's what my grandma and grandpa believed. And they're dead now. Where are they? What happened to them? That's what my cousins believe. That's what all my friends believe. For me to admit that Baal is a false god, for me to admit that my religion is wrong, for me to admit that I've been indoctrinated, for me to admit that that's going to have to be, that's for me to say that my family is wrong and, and my grandparents were wrong and, and my whole life has been wrong and I don't want to have to admit that. I, I shudder to think, oh wait, my family's been deceived? I don't want to say that. Do you see how pride can grip us? I don't want to admit I'm wrong. A position of power undergirded her in, in, in perpetuating Baal worship. The way by which she maintained her power was through Baal. Baal was her way. Baal was her ticket. Uh, Baal was what got her where she was. It was Baal worship that got her uh, down to Israel. It was Baal worship that gave her clout. It was Baal worship that was her thing. She didn't want to have to uh, start all over again with a new God. Pride. Pride. She was unwilling to admit what was right in front of her face. Why? Because of pride. Like Paul, who was called Saul. Saul knew that Jesus was Messiah. Uh, the Holy Spirit had been uh, pricking his heart and goading his heart and touching his heart, but he refused to. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe it. And he was just so incensed about Christians, he put them to death, and he was there when Stephen died. But Jesus said to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against what I'm doing in your life. Until Paul dealt with his pride, he couldn't be saved. Before honor is humility. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's what he's saying, is admit who you are, see who I am. But Jezebel said, I want none of it. She refused. She rejected the, the verified communication. She resorted to a vengeful course. I, I can't do anything about the truth, but I can do everything about the messenger of the truth. I can't do anything about the truth. By the way, you can't, you can't destroy truth. Truth marches on. You can't destroy truth. Now, you can destroy the messenger, and that's what she did. I want to kill it. Oh, I don't like what I'm hearing, so I'm going to put my head in the sand. 
Maybe that'll make it go away. I don't like what I'm hearing, so I'll just turn the volume down. Maybe that'll make it go away. Like Herod Antipas, I'll just kill John the Baptist. Like Paul, I'll just kill Stephen. Like Pilate, I'll just kill Jesus. And yet the truth marched on. And here was Jezebel saying, and I'll just kill. I just won't go to church. I just won't read my Bible. I just won't listen to my Christian friends. I just won't. Listen, you can try to turn down the volume all you want to. Turn it off, reject it, but it doesn't change the truth. She resorted to a vengeful course. She retained a vain commitment. You know, at the end of the day, she still maintained a commitment to her gods. Now, in her heart of hearts, she knew there wasn't, she knew her gods weren't powerful. In her heart of hearts, she knew it was a sham and a charade. In her heart of hearts, she knew that her gods couldn't deliver her. They, they couldn't even deliver her, her, their own prophet. It was one against 450. She knew in her heart of hearts, but she was unwilling to give up her power and her control and her position, her pride. That's Jezebel. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, you know, I, I've been confronted with Jesus before. I've been confronted with the gospel before, but... I don't want to believe that because that, that would mean that I've been wrong and that would mean that my family's been wrong and that would mean that, no, yeah, that's right. That, that is what that means. But who knows but that God didn't start with you. Who knows but that your salvation could not be the catalyst for many others in your life and relatives and friends and, and, and everybody. But Jezebel said, no, no, no. Pride always says no to God. Jezebel. Watch this, number two. Not only do I see Jezebel, but secondly, this morning, I see, I see Ahab. The Bible says, then Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Honestly, this is Ahab's shining moment. This is probably the, the highest that Ahab ever gets in his spiritual walk with God. I think Ahab was a, a believing man. I think Ahab had responded well the day before. Ahab was among the crowd that said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. I think Ahab believed all that. I think Ahab responded humbly. Uh, I think Ahab responded graciously when Elijah invited him to the celebratory meal. I think Eli, he uh, responded humbly when Elijah sent his servant and said, uh, Ahab, it's time for you to go home and, and tell your wife about this. I think Ahab was doing everything right, at least for a moment. What do I see about Ahab? I see, first of all, his initial communication. His initial communication. Initially, initially, boy, Ahab started so well. Like, like that seed that's sown in the, in the, in the uh, thorny ground, it, it rises up quick, but there's no depth to it. There, there's, no, there's, no, there's no root system to it, and it dies quickly. That's Ahab. Ahab, uh, I think he believes it, and I think he, he's uh, awe-inspired by it, and I think he wants to go back and tell Jezebel, Jezebel, you're not going to believe what I saw. You're not going to believe what God did. Yeah, we've been wrong, Jezebel. I think he had every good intention. You read the story of Ahab, you read this story. Watch, you read this story, roller coaster. That's Ahab's story. He makes really dumb decisions because he wants to please everybody around him. He wants to please Jezebel. He wants to please Jehoshaphat. He wants to please his servants. He wants to please himself. He wants to, he wants to please everybody before God. Everybody before God. He just wants his way. And boy, when Jezebel, when Ahab is confronted about a sin, boy, he gets sorry real quickly. Remember the Naboth's vineyard? Boy, Elijah confronted him. God's going to deal with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he meant it. And God forgave him. But he lived this roller coaster life. Roller coaster. Initial Communication. He was always good at the beginning. He just never had any 
follow through. Not only do I see his initial communication, but then I see his eventual compromise. Now the story unfolds as Ahab tells Jezebel, and you don't read anything more about Ahab. Not in this chapter. Ahab tells Jezebel, and Jezebel takes over. Okay, Ahab, got it. I'll take it from here. Ahab doesn't stop her. Ahab, doesn't, Ahab does, does nothing to ameliorate the situation. No, it's Ahab. He's compromising. He's allowing Jezebel to rule, allowing Jezebel to make the decisions. Allowing Je- and by the way, he continues to do that. Naboth's vineyard, oh, I want that vineyard. Just go take it, says Jezebel. No, his big compromise in life was he was willing to give the people of his life more sway in his decision-making than God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who who has the greatest sway in your decision-making? A person or God? Maybe that's why Jesus said, if any man come after me and hate not, that means to favor, not hate in the sense we use it today. If any man come after me and hate not father and mother and wife and children and brethren and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. See, discipleship has a requisite. And the requisite of discipleship is that Jesus, his word, holds a final sway in my life. And if what Jesus wants for me, if God, what God wants for me, if what the word of God wants for me is different than what somebody else wants me to do, I must choose what God wants me to do every single time, not Ahab. Ahab allowed the people of his life to have more sway in his life than did God. His own life, his wife, his family had more sway than God did in his life. And we all have to come to that decision, every single one of us. I wrote this down in my, in my notes. The greatest danger to a new or repentant believer is the sway of a past relationship. Let me just say that again. The greatest danger to a new or repentant believer is the sway of a past relationship. It's like, well, I've been saved. Jesus is in my heart now. I must follow the Lord with my life, which means I'm going to love people better. I'm going to serve people better. But listen, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, I'll come out from among them, be a separate, saith the Lord, to touch not the unclean thing. He said to them, hey, listen, what concord have Christ with Belial? In other words, the relationships of your life are keeping you from the relationship in your life. But we've got to guard that, don't we? Make sure that Jesus is not just a resident in my life. He is the president of my life, and there's a big difference. He doesn't just have a place in my heart. He's on the throne of my heart. That's where Jesus ought to be, first place. There's only room for one on that throne, and his name ought to be Jesus Christ. And so who's Ahab? He's one with an initial communication, an eventual compromise, but then a final calamity. I won't go into it, but I'll say this. The reason why Ahab died one day prematurely is for this very reason. Because he he took the advice of others and ultimately wanted to do his own thing ahead of what God, through his prophet, told him to do. And it killed him. And it killed him. What a sad demise for a carnal Christian, Ahab. Maybe you're Jezebel today. You don't know the Lord. You're unwilling to bend your heart in humility to God. Let me implore for you to reconsider that decision. Maybe you're Ahab today. You do know the Lord. Uh, You have followed him ostensibly at least for a time. 
but you're allowing yourself to be mitigated in your decision-making by other people, other relationships that have taken the place of your Christ relationship. Hey, let me implore you to put Christ first again in your life. And then lastly, this morning, we saw Ahab and we saw Jezebel, but notice now Elijah, where the Bible says in verse number three, and when he saw that, when Elijah heard the message from the messenger from Jezebel, watch what he does. He arose, I mean, he got up, and he ran for his life. He went for his life. He came to Beersheba. Where's Beersheba? Beersheba is as far south as you can go. So often in the Bible, you'll hear this term, from Dan to Beersheba. That's the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost part of the United Kingdom of Israel. Now it's Israel and Judah, and Beersheba is actually in Judah, but from Dan all the way to the north, all the way down to Beersheba. South of Beersheba, it still belongs to Israel, but there's nothing there. It's wilderness, and not wilderness like woods and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but wilderness like desert, like nothing there, like a bush or two. That's, that's the wilderness. So the Bible says that Elijah ran all the way as far as he could go to Beersheba, and then he left his servant there, and he went farther. He went on the middle of the desert and slept underneath a bush. Look at verse number four again. He went a day's journey onto the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. Don't picture a tree like redwood. Don't picture a tree like oak. Picture a tree like a shrub. He's lying under a shrub in the middle of a desert. And he requested for himself that he might die. God, just kill me. He said, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. Just kill me right here, God. I'm not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him. Just like Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, so God sent a messenger to Elijah. Jezebel said to the messenger, I'm going to kill you. And God said to the messenger, I'm going to help you. Jezebel said, I'm going to end your life. And God said, I'm going to give you new life. And God's always the anti-Jezebel. The Bible says, the angel said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals. I mean, God through the angel made him the meal. This is the first biblical evidence of, of DoorDash. Verse number six a cruise of water at his hand, head. And cr cruise of water actually translated in the Hebrew is diet Chick-fil-A lemonade. <laughs> and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. The angel of the Lord came again the second time. How kind. He touched him that second time. And he said, arise and eat that second time. The journey is too great for you. I still have a place I want you to go. Elijah is running aimlessly. And God says, no, Elijah, I, I, I have a place I need you to go. And I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to touch you again. So what do we learn about Elijah? Uh, three questions and we're done. First of all, when did he run? Well, when did Elijah run? Listen, listen. Elijah ran immediately. Because that's the way we human beings are wired. Fight or flight. Fight or flight. It's like, I'm going to kill you. Ah, he ran. And so easy for us in our living rooms. It's so easy for us at our kitchen tables. 
It's so easy for us in our Sunday best with our Bible on our lap to say, well, Elijah, where's your faith? I mean, after all, Elijah, did not the ravens feed you? I mean, come on, same God. I mean, didn't God feed you through the widow? I mean, that's a miracle. I mean, come on, Elijah, did not God bring down fire from heaven? Uh, did not he defeat the prophets of Baal? I mean, come on, Elijah, there's just one woman threatening you. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's easy to say come on when you're not the guy who's on, the, on death row, right? If you were there and got a message from some cranky woman who's already killed like a, a number of your friends, chapter 18 and verse four, she's already killed a number of your friends. Now she says, I'm gonna get you and I swear I'm gonna do it. You'd run too. So, so when did he run? Immediately. Now, it was a mistake, but it's an understandable mistake. It was, it was, it was wrong. It was faithless, but it was understandably faithless. I, I get it. Every other time that Elijah moved from chapter 17 and 18, God told him to move. God said, go to Ahab. He did. Go to the brook. He did. Go to the widow. He did. Appeared before Ahab. He did. Go to Mount Carmel. He did. Every, go to Jezreel. He did. Every other time... That Elijah has moved, he's moved at the voice of God. This is the only time he said, No, I'm gonna move at the voice of Jezebel. That's when we get ourselves into trouble, by the way. You better make sure you get a word from God. And Jezebel, why did he run? Immediately. Number two, why? Why did he run? We, we see the answer in the verses we just read. What, why did he run? He was afraid to die. He ran for his life. That's the first reason he, he ran. He went for his life. I don't want to die. I don't want, to just, I don't want somebody to chop my head off. I just want to stab me or execute me in some heinous way. I'm, I'm afraid of dying. Uh, there was a natural fear of dying. Number two, I think he ran because he was experiencing failed expectations. I, I thought that she would believe. I, I thought that this would institute revival. I thought that that great service at Mount Carmel would somehow migrate over to Jezreel. I thought that we were done with this Baal thing. I thought that, that, that what else does God have to do? And we got fire from heaven. I mean, come on, the rain came. Well, come on. I expected, I expected failed expectations. When our expectations don't meet reality, we become frustrated oftentimes with God himself. Remember Jesus on Resurrection Sunday? He's walking with those two disciples on their way to Emmaus. They don't know who he is. They said, what's wrong? You, you seem like you're down. Oh, are you a stranger in this country? You, you don't know what's wrong? No, 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 tell me. Well, we, we were following this one named Jesus, and we thought he was the one. We thought he was the one. He did miracles, and he preached a great message, and, and then it all came crashing down. I guess we were wrong. We're so Disappointed. We had such high expectations, but God failed us. Have you ever felt that way? Because that's exactly how Elijah is feeling. God, I've been serving you. God, I've been trusting you. God, I've been standing for you. And this is what I get? Maybe that's where you are today. God, I've been serving you. I've been trusting you. I've been standing, and this is what I get? Fear of dying. Failed expectations. Futility of purpose. Uh, it's enough. I'm done. Done, done. Done. I'm done. It's enough. I'm no better than my fathers. 
know what that means? That means I'm just the next one in a long line of failures. Like all my prophet fathers have all proclaimed and they've all died, they've all suffered martyr's death and nothing changes. The world's still bad. Evil is still in control. And my life is a waste. So God, if it's okay with you, just take me home. That's a tough, tough place to be. When did he run? Immediately. Why did he run? For those reasons. Well, where did he run? Here's the big answer, ready? As far as he could go. Does that remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Who ran as far as he could go? Yeah, old Jonah. He bought a ticket to go to Tarshish. That was as far as you could go in the then known world, all the way to modern day Spain, at the end of the world, to, to Jonah's thinking. Man, I'm done with God. I'm done with serving God. I'm going to go as far away from this scene as I possibly can go, and I might as well just die. I'm no good. But these are the same words that Jonah said. He went all the way to Beersheba. Ironically, it was Beersheba where Abraham renewed a vow. It was in Beersheba that Isaac received a promise from God. It was in Beersheba. Don't miss this. It was in Beersheba that a little slave girl by the name of Hagar, through no fault of her own, was kicked out of Abraham's house. And she went out from Beersheba into the wilderness, just like Elijah did, with no food and no water and no hope. And there she was with her boy, Ishmael. She said, God, this is not fair. You know who showed up and helped her there? God did. The God that sees. Maybe Elijah went to Beersheba and then went to the wilderness because he knew the story of Hagar. He says, God, I just need you to see me here. Maybe that's where you are today. God, this is not working out. Can you see me? And here's my favorite principle in the story. God was guiding Elijah even when Elijah was running. Did you hear that? God was guiding Elijah even when Elijah was running. And you might be in your seat this morning thinking, you know, I'm disappointed. Truth be told, Pastor, I'm a bit frustrated. I thought that things wouldn't work out like this. I don't really think this is fair. Maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness. Can I say this? Your God loves you. He's got a place for you. He's got a future for you. He's got a plan for you. And right now he says to you, I love you. Hey, get some rest. Get some rest. Get some strength. Get some rest. Get some strength and we'll talk. Get some rest, get some strength, and we'll talk. Say, what do they talk about? Oh, you're going to have to come back in two weeks. (laughs) Don't read ahead. I don't want you reading your Bible. (laughs) But I'll give you the title of the message in two weeks. What are you doing here? God's going to ask you that question. What are you doing here? 
And boy, his answer, mm, you don't want to miss it.